Good morning. It really is a very great pleasure to be with you. Uh, I am indeed an old friend, and uh, so I don't know how many more times uh, we could manage this, but uh, the traveling gets more challenging all the time. But uh, it really, really is a very great pleasure. Uh, it's been lovely to see many faces and talk to people I, I met last time, and uh, uh, it's a joy to know of this church here and the good things the Lord is doing here, and to have lots of friends on, on this side of the country. So just a, just a great pleasure to be here. Uh, for this message this morning, I'm going to, in, in a sense, turn aside from directly addressing the subject of evangelism. And I want to be thinking about who we are to be in the world, what kind of life the Lord desires from us. And to do this, we're going to look at a section of the book of Ruth. Now, what I'm going to do is very challenging, and I probably shouldn't be doing it. It's the kind of thing I advise our students never to do. Uh, I guess that's one of the fun things about being a professor. You can uh, teach one thing and do something else. But... but, uh, I have to try to summarize the book because while some of you here have already said to me, this is my favorite book in the Bible, others of you will never have read it. And so I need to, to, before we read chapter three, I'm going to take a few minutes to set the story for us so we've got it in its context, so we know what is happening here. So first, just a little bit about the time in which this story took place. It is taking place around 1100 B.C., so 1100 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's primarily set in the city of Bethlehem, the city in which Jesus would be born 1100 years after this story takes place. The time in which it's set was a very challenging time. It was a time when the people of Israel, God's people who he had called to worship him and to love him and to walk in his ways, the people he had redeemed, these people had turned away from him and were living in terrible disobedience. The book of Judges ends just the page before the book of Ruth and says this is a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's the context in which this story takes place of the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi and then Boaz, whom she eventually marries, they are living among a people who mostly are utterly unbelieving, living in idolatry, disobeying God, forgetting his commandments, forgetting his love, forgetting his redemption, not interested in him. Instead, what they're interested in is their own fulfillment and personal happiness, Their time is very like our time. Uh, Most of the people in this country, in the culture in which we live, are living and doing exactly what is right in their own eyes. They're living for their own personal fulfillment, for their own happiness. They're defining life for themselves. And this, of course, for any of us who are Christian believers here today, is the greatest challenge we face. Are we going to love God and walk in his ways and 
delight in the love of his son for us or are we going to live just how we want to live and do what we want to do and get what we want out of life and pay no attention to the Lord. So the book of Ruth is set in a time just like ours. And there are two questions really here that I want us to think about. One is, what is God doing in such a time as this? Both in that day, 1,100 years before Jesus came, what is God doing in our day, in our lives, in our setting? And what is our calling? What was the calling of Ruth and Boaz? In that day, what is the calling of us today? So that is really the theme of this message. Now, as we think about the particular story of Ruth, the book opens with the fact that Elimelech, an Israelite from the city of Bethlehem, in deep disobedience to God, takes his wife and his two sons, and he goes to live in the land of Moab. The people of Israel were forbidden by God to have anything at all to do with the Moabites. And that was fundamentally because of their religion, the God they worshipped. They worshipped a God named Chemosh, who is called that abominable God. He demanded child sacrifice of those who worshipped him, that they would offer their children to him, and other very terrible things. So the Israelites were forbidden to have anything to do with them at all, to live there, to intermarry with them. But Elimelech is clearly not a believer. He doesn't love God. He does exactly what he wants to do. So he leaves Bethlehem. He goes to Moab. He names his two sons with pagan names, not with usual Israelite names, which reflect something about the love of God, as his name does. His name means God is my king, but he, God is not his king. He doesn't recognize God as his king, and he gives his sons pagan names, and he goes to live in this pagan country, Moab. And there, in direct disobedience to the commandments of God, he has his sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And that is where our story is going to begin today. I have some slides up here with paintings as we are going uh, along. And this first painting is what happens after there is a tragedy. In Moab, there's a terrible tragedy. Both the father and his two sons die leaving three widows, one elderly, two of them young, Naomi, the mother, and Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi decides, because she is a believer, she is going to go back to Bethlehem. And she, her two daughters-in-law say, we will come with you. And she says, no, don't come. Don't come. Oh, Stay with your families, stay with your people, stay in your land. And she tries to persuade them, and one of them, Orpah, leaves. And you see her leaving there in that painting, weeping. It's a painting by William Blake from around 1790, something like that. William Blake, the poet uh, and painter. Some very interesting illustrations. So Orpah leaves, and she goes back to her family, to her parents, to her land, and to her God to her people. And then Ruth decides to go with her mother. Despite her mother-in-law trying to persuade her not to go, 
you know, there's nothing I can do for you, so you stay here. Ruth insists on going. And she makes a really wonderful statement. And I'll read her words to you because they're very beautiful words. She says this, and these are from chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These wonderful words of Ruth are like a marriage vow. Uh, a deep commitment to her mother-in-law. And what is beautiful, of course, is that this is the story of Ruth's conversion. She has turned away from this abominable God of the people of Moab, the God Chemosh, and she is coming to worship the Lord. She has come to faith in him, and she devotes herself to a life of serving Naomi, her mother-in-law living with her, living for her, staying with her till she dies, and then committing herself to stay in the land of Israel and to worship the God of Israel all her life. So it's a wonderful story of the mission of God. That's really the first part of the story. God is saving Ruth and calling her to himself. And Boaz, Boaz is a a fairly prosperous man who lives in Bethlehem with a good bit of land. And on her first day there, Ruth meets Boaz because she is gleaning in his fields. And Boaz has heard what has happened to Ruth, how Ruth has come to believe in the Lord and how she's been so faithful and kind and loving to her mother-in-law. And this is what he says to her, and this is from chapter 2. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Those beautiful words, the wings of refuge. Ruth has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Every one of you who is a Christian believer... That is true of you. You have come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord, a very safe place to be, secure in his enduring, steadfast love forever. Now, those words of Boaz are lovely, and they contain a very intentional echo of another passage in Scripture. And wherever you have an echo like that in Scripture, it is purposeful. Now, what Boaz's words echo is the call of Abraham and Sarah. When God called Abraham and Sarah to leave Ur of the Chaldees, in present-day Iraq, to leave Mesopotamia, to leave the gods their family worshipped, they were moon gods, to leave their land, to leave their people, to leave their family, and come to a land they did not know, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, as it would be, and serve God there. God called Abraham and Sarah to himself. And these words of Boaz to Ruth 
Remember, echo those words of God about Abraham and Sarah. And what Boaz is saying and what the text means to say, because this is the author's intention of the book of Ruth, and it is God's intention as the the final author of the Bible, God's intention here is that we look at Ruth and we see her as a new beginning of God's work of salvation in the world. Just as when God called Abraham and Sarah, this was a new beginning, which would eventually result in the people of Israel, as he called them out of paganism, out of their land, away from their people, away from their family, to come to the land of Canaan and worship God there, to be his people. That was a new beginning of God's work in the world, and we are all the heirs of that. We think of Abraham and Sarah as our father and mother, the mother and father of all who believe. And that's right, because that is the way the scripture speaks. Now here, the book of Ruth, Boaz is telling us that Ruth is another new beginning of God's work of salvation in the world. That God is redeeming people from the nations. He's redeemed Ruth from Moab. And he's called her to himself. He's called her to the land of Israel. He's called her to become part of the people of God. And God is saving her. And now Ruth's calling, like Abraham and Sarah's calling, is to be a blessing to the world. That's what God said to Abraham and Sarah, that they were to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we are still being blessed by them today as we think about them as they are our great, 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 great grandparents. We are the children of Abraham and Sarah. But God's new beginning is taking place in Ruth and Ruth is called to be a blessing to the world. A blessing to her mother-in-law, a blessing to Boaz, who she will marry, to her children, to her descendants, and ultimately to Christ, because Christ is descended from Ruth. Ruth is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. You'll find her name mentioned in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus. So Ruth is his ancestress, and Ruth is a blessing all down through the generations. And she is a blessing to us because this is a really lovely story of God's work of salvation, which brings joy to our hearts today. Now, there they are. They come back to Bethlehem, and they are widows. They're both widows. Ruth is a widow. She is an orphan. She is an alien. And she, they come to Bethlehem together, and they have nothing. They have no property. They have no means of making a livelihood. This has been true for widows and still is true for widows almost over the whole world today. The great majority of the poor in the world today are widows, orphans, and aliens. That is who Ruth is, a widow, an orphan, and an alien. What can they do to put bread on the table? Well, Ruth is the one who is young and strong. Naomi has become quite elderly at this point. And on their first day there in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to the fields to glean. That is her only hope of putting bread on the table. 
of gleaning in the fields. The harvest has just begun. The period of harvest, first barley and then wheat, lasts seven or eight weeks. And Ruth is going out at the very beginning of the barley harvest, the first harvest. And she's going to be absolutely dependent on somebody being obedient to God's commandments to allow gleaning in their fields. And basically the commandments said this. You're not to harvest the corners of your field. You're not to go back over the field a second time. If you drop any grain as you're harvesting and you harvest by hand, you drop lots of it, you're not to go back and pick it up. You're to leave the rest for the poor, for the widow, for the alien, for the orphan. Now, this is a time when people disobeyed God, and most of them pay no attention to these commandments at all. But in the wonderful kindness of God, Ruth finds herself in the field of Boaz. And Boaz is a man who loves God who desires to serve him, who meditates on his commandments and who wants to put them into practice. And so he sees this young woman there in his field and he asks who it is and the foreman tells him that it's the young Moabites and he urges her to stay in his field. He says, if you go anywhere else, you'll be raped. All over the world right now in situations of poverty and aid, you just look on your, on your computer, on the internet. In any situation of aid in the world, women are routinely raped or demanded to give sexual favors to aid workers, both those from America and Europe and the locals, in exchange for food. That was the situation in Ruth's day. There's a story in the book of Judges, a woman who is raped to death by a group of young men. It's just a few miles from Bethlehem. So Boaz says to her, you stay in my fields. You'll be safe here. I've commanded my young men not to touch you. Don't go anywhere else. You are at risk. Well, on that first day, Ruth gleans a great deal, and I'll say more about that later. And she comes home with an enormous amount of grain, and that lovely picture you had at first shows this huge that huge bag of grain. Well, she comes home on the first day with an enormous amount of grain, and I'll say why, why later. But her mother-in-law is amazed by what has happened, and Ruth recants her day, and she tells how she went to the field of Boaz and how he'd said, stay here because you'll be assaulted anywhere else, and Naomi says to her, that's what I've been worried about all day long, that you would be assaulted in the fields. And this is a good man. Now this brings us to Ruth chapter 3 and the theme of my message, an even greater kindness. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put in your cloak 
and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, later on, I have a wonderful picture here. There's lots of pictures of the harvesting in the fields, but I have a wonderful picture by Rembrandt, a pen and ink drawing of Boaz sending out Ruth back with six measures of barley, which was a a huge, huge amount uh, of grain. I don't know if we can get that up there, but uh, it doesn't matter if we don't. Now, There it is. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture by Rembrandt. And uh, six measures of barley, by the way, is an enormous amount. Ruth would have been staggering uh, all the way home. Uh, Just a huge amount of grain. It just says something about the generosity uh, and kindness and intentions of Boaz uh, when when he does this. Uh, She really must have been a strong young woman. Uh, He may have had to send somebody with her to help her carry it. Uh, It's just a huge amount. Now, how are we to understand this? What's going on here? How are we to think about Naomi's scheme? Is this some cunning scheme on uh, Naomi's part to take advantage of Boaz? How are we to understand what Ruth does laying down by this guy, you know, in the dark at night in this great barn at the threshing floor? 
Is she trying to seduce him? So this is what's happen, happening here. You know, uh, is their relationship consummated that night? Do they have sex on the threshing barn floor? Is that what happens? Many of the artists and commentators on this passage understand it that way. Uh, and I won't put up any of those paintings for you. They wouldn't be uh, appropriate uh, to show here, uh, which uh, express that. So what is going on here? What is going on? Well, there's some very interesting and some rather challenging customs behind this. And, and fundamentally, they're about issues of inheritance. They're about what do you do when somebody has died without any, without any children? Will the person's name, will the man's name die out? And over much of the world, and it's still true today in many parts of Africa, in China, in many parts of Asia, in parts of the former Soviet Union like Kyrgyzstan, this is still practiced. It's called leveret marriage. And if somebody dies childless, a relative is required to marry the widow to raise up children to inherit the dead man's name. His children won't bear his name and be part of his lineage. They'll be in the lineage of the man who has died. That's leveret marriage. That's one of the customs here. The second is the redemption of land. In a situation like this where Elimelech left his land. Somebody else will have been farming it for all the years that he's been gone. In Israel, of course, the land didn't belong to the people. It belonged to the Lord. And then the Lord gave it to his people as tenants. Now, that's true for you, by the way. Your job, your home, your car, your bank account, your savings funds, everything you own actually isn't yours at all. It's God's. That's what the Bible teaches everywhere. And you are God's tenant. You are his steward. You hold what God has entrusted to you as his steward to serve him. There is no absolute right personal ownership for Christian believers. Everything is the Lord's, including ourselves. And we are the Lord's tenants and stewards. And our calling is to serve him with what we've got. That's what giving tithes and offerings is about. It's just simply expressing everything I have is God's. And I'm giving some back to Prove to him that I know that, that I recognize it's all his, not mine. Now, in this situation, Elimelech's land is being farmed by somebody else. And the kinsman redeemer has the responsibility to buy back the land from the person who's farming it for the dead man's widow. Now, Ruth is asking Boaz to do two things. She is asking him to marry her. 
That's the first thing he's doing. She's doing. Those beautiful words, spread your wings over me, or spread the corner of your garment over me, as some of your translations will put it, are used in the book of Ezekiel by God himself to describe how he married his people Israel. He betrothed them to himself by spreading his wings over them, by spreading the corner of his garment over them. That's what the Lord has done for each of you who are Christian believers. He has spread his wings over you, and you have come to take refuge under his wings. So Ruth is proposing marriage. She is asking Boaz to marry her, to be her redeemer, to redeem the name of her dead father-in-law and her dead husband, and to redeem the land of her dead father-in-law. So Boaz is being asked to be the Luthier and the kinsman redeemer by Ruth. And it's a very beautiful thing. And, and Boaz says, well, there's another relative who's even closer whose responsibility this is. But if he doesn't do it, I will. And that very day, Boaz goes out. You can go home and read chapter 4. Boaz goes out. He goes to the city gates, which is the place where legal decisions are made. And in front of lots of witnesses, like in a court of law, he says to the closer relative, will you redeem the land of Elimelech? And the guy immediately says, oh, yes, I, I would love to buy that land because then it will enrich me and my descendants. So Boaz puts the land first, and the guy says immediately, yes, because this is going to make me more prosperous. I'll have more land, more stuff, more money. And then Boaz asks the second question, but will you redeem Ruth? Will you marry her to raise up children in the name of the dead man? And the man immediately says, no. No, I won't, because that will damage my inheritance. I'm not prepared to do this. This is too costly. So he absolutely refuses to be the redeemer. And Boaz, it's Boaz's delight to be the redeemer. And so he does it that day, and they get married, and they have a son who becomes the eventual ancestor of Jesus. Now, that's, that's the whole outline of the story. But what I want to focus on for our last few minutes here is these words of Boaz to Ruth. He says, when she proposes to him, he says, this is an even greater kindness than the first. What, what does he mean by that? They're such interesting words. What was the first kindness that Ruth had done for Boaz? Her first kindness to Boaz was to come and glean in his fields. Now, most Israelites in that day wouldn't have let her be there. They'd have just driven her off or raped her. But Boaz regards this as a kindness to him. And what what does he mean? What he means is this. Boaz understands the love of God so deeply, so profoundly, that he understands that all God's commandments are about imitating the love of God. 
And so he sees it as a, a joy, as a privilege, as a kindness to him to be given the possibility of obeying this commandment to allow gleaning in his fields. Now, gleaning is very costly. They didn't have combine harvesters. So if you let allowed gleaning, basically the gleaners would get a quarter or more of your crop. That's what happens when you harvest by hand. When I was a little boy, we had a couple of acres of wheat, which we harvested by hand. If you didn't go back a second time, if you didn't pick up what you dropped, uh, you'd lost at least a quarter, maybe a third of it. God's quite aware of that. And the Israelites were not to think about their economic advantage. They were to think about imitating the kindness of God. And that's what Boaz does. And he sees that as a privilege, as a joy, as a kindness to him, that he has this opportunity. And Boaz doesn't simply obey the letter of the law. What he does is this. He says to his harvesters, you know, don't let Ruth just glean behind you. Let her come forward till she's gleaning right among where you're reaping. And don't just let her pick up things you drop by accident. He says, I want you to purposefully drop whole sheaves of grain for her to pick up so that she can glean a great deal. Then at break time, you know, Boaz gives her water along with his workers who are working in his field. At lunchtime, he invites her to come and sit with them all, and he provides lunch for her, roasted barley, not from what she has gleaned, but from what his harvesters have gathered. And he gives her so much food at lunchtime that she has enough to take home to feed both herself and Naomi that evening. And he's committed to protecting her. He tells his young men not to touch her, to watch over her, to guard her, to keep her safe. And then he tells her, you keep coming back here every day for the whole harvest, which is what she does. So he doesn't feel he's fulfilled his obligations by letting her glean for one day. She comes every day for seven weeks. And every day she's getting this huge amount of grain. And by the end of the harvest, she will have gleaned enough to feed herself and Naomi all through the winter months to come and have enough to sell. And he sees this as a privilege. This is a, a kindness for him that he has this wonderful possibility of obeying the beauty of God's generosity, of God's kindness, of God's goodness to his people. That, that is your calling. And that is my calling. Every day of our lives, in our workplaces, if we've got people working for us, to treat them with this kind of generosity and kindness. It's very costly, of course. But Boaz understands the love of God so profoundly. And then when Ruth asks him to marry her and asks him to redeem the land, you know, he says, this is an even greater kindness because this is even going to be more costly, of course. It's going to cost him a lot of money to buy back that land. 
And he's going to be raising up children in the name of Elimelech, not for himself. But he responds to this with joy. But that is why people love the book of Ruth, because Boaz's commitment to be the kinsman redeemer is a very beautiful picture for us of the love of Christ, of the redemption of Christ. Where it says, for the joy that was set before Christ, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Here is Boaz. He's prepared to lay out lots of money to to give himself to redeem this woman, to redeem her family name, to redeem the land. And he regards it as a privilege, not an unpleasant obligation, a difficult duty, a burden he has to endure. Oh, this is one of those things God has me do. You know, and we can be like that about the commandments of God. Well, am I going to give? Am I going to be kind? Am I going to be hospitable? Am I going to share? This is a bit of a challenge. I'm not prepared to do this. It's too costly to me. That's what the closer relative said. This is too costly. But Boaz understands God's love so deeply and God's redemption in such a lovely way that his heart is filled to overflowing with the love of God, with God's love for him. We might say, how did he get it so deeply? He's living so long before Jesus came. How does he get it so deeply? Well, one thing perhaps, and we can ask him one day, but Boaz is directly descended from Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Here's a family who have come out of great sin and they know the love and redemption of God. That's his family. That's his heart. And this is our calling. That we are those who have been loved by Christ with a love which is so costly, so rich, so profound. And Jesus calls us to go out from this place into the world as those who regard it as a kindness to us that we have the privilege, that we have the possibility of showing, of displaying, of representing to our neighbors, to our unbelieving family members, to the city, to its homeless people, to your colleagues at work, to people who work for you and over you, to show to everybody around you something of this immeasurable love of God. That's the privilege of being a Christian. That God has entrusted us with both the message of the love of Christ but also with the calling to live it out and regard it as a joy and a kindness to us that we have that privilege. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you have loved us so wonderfully in your Son. We rejoice in him. We have sung his praises. We're going to sing them again, and we thank you.
for him. We pray that that love will pour into our hearts so fully that it may flow out of us in a life of love for others. For the glory of Jesus' name, for the salvation of other people, for the growth of your kingdom, we ask it for Jesus and for his glory. Amen.